Hey, good morning, Christ Church. Go ahead and find your seats. Go great. It's so great to have you in worship this morning, bright and early on this New Year's Day. Hope you had a great time last night uh, celebrating, bringing in a new year. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nathan. I'm a vicar here at Christ Church, which is a fancy way of saying pastor in training. Uh, today, we're doing a one-off message, one message called Family Feud. Uh, but next week, we're starting a new message series called Keep the Change, really focusing in on money and how we can get into a great spot in our life and how to honor God with our finances by getting in that great spot as well. But uh, today, we're talking about Family Feud and talking about some of the family feuds uh, that we see in the Bible. And we're really going to focus in on Joseph And we just celebrated Christmas, uh, where there was a Joseph in the Christmas story that's pretty central. Jesus' earthly father, the husband of Mary, Joseph. Uh, We're talking about a different Joseph, a Joseph from the Old Testament, a Joseph all the way back in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And something to know about Joseph is this Joseph comes from dysfunction. Everywhere in Joseph's life, everywhere in his family tree, looking back, is dysfunction. It's all over the place. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. There is so much family dysfunction taking place. And as a result, there are tons of family feuds. In fact, we put out a little, you know, survey, if you will, a little family feud thing on our Christchurch Community Facebook page asking, what is the biggest sibling rivalry in the Bible? And a bunch of the answers that came back come from Joseph's family tree. Of course, there was Joseph and his brothers, which is where we're going to focus today. But we also saw Jacob and Esau. We saw all the way back uh, to Cain and Abel, who the Jewish people can trace their heritage back to him, uh, back to those two. And Cain was the brother who killed his brother, Abel. And so there are tons of family feuds, tons of these rivalries in the Bible and in Joseph's family tree. In fact, if we look at the family tree, we're going to see time and time again where there is dysfunction present. And it starts all the way at the top back to Abraham, who is kind of the, the father, the founding father of Judaism. And since Judaism uh, is the kind of the religion where we as Christians get our heritage, Abraham's kind of the founding father, if you will, a little bit of Christianity as well. Of course, Jesus plays a pretty important role as well. Uh, but we can trace our heritage back to Abraham as well. And we start this look at Joseph's family dysfunction by looking at Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Now, in the story, they hadn't yet changed their names. So they're going to go by Abram and Sarai, but know that they are the same people as Abraham and Sarah. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an, Ab- she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. Now, God had made a covenant with Abram that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. This was the covenant, the promise God had made to Abram. And yet, Abram and his wife were very old, so old in Sarai's case that she was not able to have children, not normally at least. And so Sarah thought, you know, it's a great idea because we need these descendants. You can't have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky without children. Instead of me having the children, why don't, why don't you, you, you know, have children with my servant Hagar? And Abram agrees with this. Now, obviously, this is a terrible idea, but 
It's what they agreed upon. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abraham as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Right, right away, we see dysfunction. Right away, there is this rivalry now taking place between Sarai and Hagar. And they do not get along. And this continues far into just their, this moment here, but it continues into the lives of their children. You see, Abraham and Hagar had their son Ishmael, but then through God's miraculous works, Sarah herself was able to conceive, and they had a child named Isaac. And so Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, Abraham and Hagar have Ishmael. Now, Ishmael and Isaac had their own sibling rivalry, their own family feud. We're going to see this time and time again, these family feuds. But they have this own sibling rivalry, and they get into a little bit of a fight, uh, and Sarah does not like this at all. And so she basically kicks Hagar and Ishmael out of the family, out of the tribe. Now, God provides for Hagar and Ishmael, and Ishmael ends up starting kind of his own tribe, the Ishmaelite people, um, and they kind of settle in Egypt. That's going to come back into play later. Isaac, though, continues the Jewish line that we, we would recognize more and more of the Bible characters come from. The Jewish people, the nation of Israel, are descended from Isaac. Now, Isaac and Rebekah get married. They have two sons who are twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau was the older brother, Jacob was the younger brother. And in this culture, the older brother is the one who's supposed to receive the blessing and all the things that go along with that. If you think in kind of more modern times, like a monarch, when the monarch dies, the oldest child becomes the next monarch. And this would be similar, not that this was a monarchy, but that the oldest child is the one who's supposed to receive the blessing. But Jacob plays a trick, is able to trick his father Isaac into giving Jacob uh, his blessing. And so Jacob deceives his father and deceives Esau and is able to be the one to receive the blessing. And so Jacob and Esau then get in their own family feud and lots of stuff happens, which we do not have time to get into this morning. But that brings us to Jacob now. And Jacob, as you can probably already tell, not the most functional family taking place later either. But Jacob ends up spending time with this man named Laban, who is a relative of his. And we pick up the story here. Laban said to him, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we are relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. And if you look at this phrase, no sparkle in Leah's eyes, the Bible, the Old Testament of the Bible, so the book of Genesis, which we're reading from, was written in Hebrew. And this phrase for Hebrew better, more directly, literally translates to English as weak eyes or dull eyes, which the Bible scholars believe it is an idiom for someone, something that we don't quite understand these days. But the translators here, the people who translated the Bible into English in this translation, this is their best guess at kind of what it meant. No sparkle in Leah's eyes. But Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. 
No, I'm not married, but I have some friends who are married, and they've told me some stories about the time when they very, you know, very traditional, went to their, at the time, girlfriend's dad and asked for his blessing to marry his daughter. And it didn't involve seven years of working for him. Uh, it usually involved about an afternoon of golf or something more along those lines. So I'm very impressed by Jacob here that he's willing uh, to give up seven years of work in order to marry Rachel. Agreed, Laban replied, I'd rather give her to you than to anyone else. Stay and work with me. So Laban and Jacob agree. They make a deal. Seven years for Rachel. Seven years of work for Rachel. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. How romantic. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I've fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. I fulfilled my agreement. We made this agreement seven years for Rachel. The time is now. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. She'll come back into play in a little bit. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me, Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? We made this agreement, seven years for Rachel. And yet now I'm married to Leah. That's not what we agreed upon. Laban replies, it's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn. But wait until the bridal week is over, then we'll give you Rachel too. Provided, of course, you promise to work another seven years for me. Jacob agreed, and I, I, I believe went above and beyond, seven years for Rachel. And yet now he's being forced to work 14 years to get what he originally agreed upon. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. He got, he got Rachel on the front end this time, but this was still not the original agreement. So Jacob ends up working 14 years and is now married to Leah, his first wife, the older daughter, and Rachel, his second wife, the younger daughter. And Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. She'll come back into play too. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. Yet again, we have another sibling rivalry that's about to emerge in this story. Now we have the sibling rivalry of Leah and Rachel. Rachel being the, the, the wife that Jacob truly loves and Leah, the one he was tricked into marrying, were sisters. And so now we get to the bottom of this family tree, and you can probably sense how convoluted and messed up it is. Right? We have Jacob married to Leah and married to Rachel, who are sisters, and they each have a servant, and you'll notice that he has kids with all of them. How did that work? Well, in the beginning of the marriage, Rachel was unable to conceive unable to have children, but Leah was. And so Leah had four sons with Jacob. And then she stopped being able to conceive. Now, Rachel didn't like this, right? She was competitive. She was jealous of her sister. And so she wanted to have kids of her own. And Jacob wanted to have kids with Rachel too. 
And so they came up with the brilliant plan. Rachel comes up with this brilliant plan of uh, having her servant Bilhah have sons with Jacob so that she, by proxy, could have her own children. Now, if you think back just a couple of generations, we know this was a bad idea. We know this didn't work out well. And yet, this is what chose to happen here too. And so now, Jacob has four sons with Leah and two with Bilhah. And Leah sees this and is unable to have more children, but didn't like that this took place. So she has the same plan as well. And so Zilpah now ends up with two sons with Jacob as well. Leah then is able to conceive again and has a couple more kids, two more sons, and the only daughter that we are aware of uh, that's mentioned in the Bible, which is Dinah. Uh, And then after all of this, Rachel is finally able to conceive through God's blessing and has a son, Joseph. Then later on, she has another son, Benjamin. But while Rachel is giving birth to Benjamin, she dies in childbirth. And so we have this incredibly messed up family structure now of Jacob with his four women, one of whom is dead, and that was the wife he actually loved, and then 12 sons and a daughter. And it creates this weird family structure which does not work well And it especially doesn't work well for the relationship of Joseph and his brothers, which we get the central family feud we're going to focus on today. You see, the problem is Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Jacob had a favorite son, and it was the son, the firstborn, the eldest son of his favorite wife. And if you look back on Jacob's life itself, that's interesting because he wasn't the firstborn son, and yet he received the blessing. So it's interesting that he favored the firstborn son of at least his favorite wife. But he has this favorite son, and he gives him this special gift that he doesn't give to his other children. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. See, Joseph and his brothers did not get along. They didn't get along much at all. And this went beyond just, you know, siblings that fight. This went beyond like, oh, they stole my clothes, or oh, they stole my favorite toy, or even beyond that as as people grow up and siblings have spats. This was real deal. These people, these brothers did not get along. So much so that when Joseph's brothers saw him coming one day, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. They hated him so much, they wanted to kill him. Now, luckily, one of the brothers, Judah, thought better of this. He said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Now, this is fascinating to me because Judah is an ancestor of Jesus. Jesus is descended from Judah. Judah's the one who comes up with this plan of not killing his brother, but not because it's like bad to kill your brother, uh, but we might get caught, right? We don't want to get caught, so let's come up with a better plan. So he comes up with a better plan. Instead of hurting him, let's sell them to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. Instead of killing him, having to cover up the crime, let's sell him, let's make money on this. So they sold him into slavery to Ishmaelites. If you remember back, Ishmael, the son of Abraham and Hagar, 
that tribe, the descendants of them. And so it is still this big family feud emerging once again from generations ago. So Joseph gets sold into slavery, is taken by Ishmaelites into Egypt. But Joseph ends up on this weird journey. While he's in slavery in Egypt, he works for a man called Potiphar. Uh, While he's working for Potiphar as a slave, he's accused of a crime which he did not commit and is thrown into prison for it. But while he's in prison, he gains some weird sense of power by being friendly with the warden and also through this ability that he has, which is interpreting and having prophetic dreams. And while he's in prison, he interprets the dreams of a couple of people. And these people end up, when they're out of prison, uh, going by Pharaoh and telling Pharaoh about this man with the ability to interpret dreams. Now, Pharaoh, if you remember the name Pharaoh from the Bible, you might be thinking, oh, isn't that the guy uh, around Moses' time? Wasn't that the leader of Egypt who wanted to kill all the newborn babies of Israelites, of the Hebrew people? Wasn't this the guy who wouldn't let the Hebrew people go out of slavery? That is a different Pharaoh, but yes, you are remembering correctly. This is generations before that, and this Pharaoh, this leader of Egypt, was a good Pharaoh. He was a good guy. And so he hears about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, and he's been having this dream that is troubling him. So he brings Joseph before him and has Joseph interpret his dream. And in this dream, Joseph, Joseph lets everyone know that there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of enough food, seven years where we will have more than enough to eat, but then there'll be seven years of famine, seven years where we'll be able to grow no more food. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge allows him to be the person responsible for making sure that they build up enough food so that in that seven years of plenty, they they build up more than enough, they build up their stores, they make sure they have enough so that when the seven years of famine come, they are prepared. And Joseph does so well that not only do they have enough food for their own people during this time, but they are able to provide for other people as well. And so Joseph's brothers hear about this. They hear not about Joseph. They don't know Joseph's doing this, but they hear the people in Egypt have food. Right, because now the famine struck and they don't have food. And so they go to Egypt to beg for food from the Egyptians. And they actually come before Joseph, but they don't recognize him. Joseph does recognize his brothers, they don't recognize him. And so Joseph puts his brothers to the test. Right? He wants to know, are these the same people who sold me into slavery? Or have they changed? Right? Have they learned something? And so the first test he has is to have them bring his younger brother who wasn't with them on the journey back. And so they go get Benjamin, bring him, it was in Israel still, bring him back to Egypt. And then Joseph basically frames his brother Benjamin, makes it seem like he stole a cup uh, from Joseph. And instead of Benjamin being the one to take the fall, All his brothers agree we'll all take the fall for this. Instead of selling out the younger brother like they did to Joseph, the older brother, they all decide to take the fall. And so because of this, Joseph realized that they have changed. They aren't the same people. They are willing to change and be better. And at this point, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. By the way, Jacob, his father, was still alive. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Remember what y'all did? 
But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. Joseph understood who God was. That God is a God who is willing to use terrible circumstances, like being sold by your brothers into slavery, and to use it for good. That is the God we serve, a God who's willing to take these terrible circumstances and use it for good. And Joseph understood this, and because of this, he understood that if he hadn't been sold into slavery, he wouldn't have ended up in power in Egypt and wouldn't then be able to feed his brothers and feed his family and provide for his family and even provide for the Egyptians too. So God took these terrible circumstances and used it for good. And through that, he was able to forgive his brothers. He was able to reconcile with his brothers. The story ends, then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them and the over them, and after that, they began talking freely with him. You see, Joseph knew that reconciliation is not easy, right? It probably wasn't easy for him to forgive the people who sold him into slavery. And he was wise in not just letting them back into his life so they could do something harmful to him again, but testing him them first. He could forgive them, but he wanted to make sure that they were tested before he brought them back into his life and fully reconciled with them. But once he did, he understood that reconciliation was not easy. And reconciliation took time. It took years of him being away from them before that reconciliation occurred. And this is after generations of family dysfunction and family feuds. And yet, he understood that God reconciles. God is a God of reconciliation. We just celebrated Christmas, which we celebrate Jesus entering into the world. And as he enters into the world, he does so to lead us, to teach us, to be an example for us. But he did so so that he could grow up and then die for us too, so that we could be reconciled back to him. God is a God of reconciliation. In fact, if you look at the Bible as a whole, the first couple pages is God creating, and then the next page is God um, God seeing Adam and Eve sinning and brokenness and sin and death entering into the world and the rest of scripture, the rest of the book is God doing whatever he can to be a God of reconciliation, to bring his people back to him and to bring his people back into relationship with one another too. Because of Jesus, we can be reconciled back to God and because of Jesus, we can be reconciled to one another as well. It was just Christmas. We just celebrated it, which probably means you spent some time with family. And I suspect, I hope, most of you haven't been sold into slavery by your family. But I also suspect that most of us, if not all of us, have some relationship in our family where there is a feud. There's some aspect of drama or problems or brokenness or rifts in our family. There's some place where reconciliation in our families are required. Because of this story, the story of Joseph, we can take hope in knowing that God is a God of reconciliation. 
then God can bring us back together to one another. Right, maybe we feel like Joseph. Maybe we feel like we've been wronged by our family, by a brother, a sister, a parent, a child, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, whoever it might be. We feel like Joseph, we've been wronged. But we can trust that God is a God who reconciles. Maybe we can forgive. Maybe we can enter back into a good, healthy relationship. Or maybe, maybe we feel like Joseph's brothers. Maybe we know that we've done wrong. Maybe we can see the places in our lives where we've caused the rifts. We've caused the problems. Well, know too that that sin, Jesus entered the world and he put that sin to death and he conquered over that sin and so you are already forgiven of that sin. And so you have been reconciled to God on behalf of that. And so you can use that to go ask whoever you've wronged for forgiveness to and allow reconciliation to occur with one another as well. Yes, we serve a God of reconciliation, a God who reconciles us back to him and a God who so deeply wants us to reconcile to one another too. So, church, let's take hope. Let's take hope this Christmas season, a season where we very clearly probably saw some of those family feuds in our lives. Let's take hope knowing that God wants to reconcile us back to each other and back to him. Let's use those opportunities to, f- to do it, to reconcile, to forgive where we need to, to ask for forgiveness where we need to, and to seek out the reconciliation that God so deeply desires for us. Let's pray. Gracious God, almighty God, Jesus, we thank you that you did enter into this world, that you humbled yourself to become like us, to teach us, to lead us, and to die for us so that we could be reconciled back to you. We pray that that reconciliation that we've received in our own lives spurs us on to seek out reconciliation with one another. That we know the rifts, the brokenness, the feuds that are present in our life with family, with friends. God, help us to see clearly the path towards reconciliation. Give us the courage to forgive and to do so wisely. Give us the courage to ask for forgiveness too. The humility to admit when we're wrong. And the courage and humility to seek out that forgiveness too. God, we pray for reconciliation. Open our eyes to see the opportunities where we can pursue it. And allow all that to be spurred on by knowing that you will do whatever it takes to reconcile us back to you. Jesus, we praise you for this. We love you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.